Brother, you have a calling at that. That is, your lessons are always so good. Like, man, I'm going to, I need to use that t-shirt analogy in my sermon somehow today. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is preaching on the mountainside, and in this section, Jesus is taking us through six antitheses, six contrasts between what people back then would have heard, taught in their day, and what is true. And the contrast is not between the New and the Old Testament. It's not like their Bible was wrong, and now Jesus is correcting it. No. All scripture is God-breathed and inspired. It's all inerrant. The contrast is between the wrong interpretation of the Old Testament that was, that was out there by the religious leaders in those days and the true interpretation, the authoritative interpretation as revealed by Jesus. So six antitheses, and today we're studying the third on divorce. Now, divorce is a hard topic to preach on. Before we even read the text, uh, I want to share a quote from you, or with you, from uh, John Stott's commentary that describes well my own thinking coming into the subject. He writes, I confess to a basic reluctance to attempt an exposition of these verses. This is partly because divorce is a controversial and complex subject but even more because it is a subject with which touches people's emotions at a deep level. There is almost no unhappiness so poignant as the unhappiness of an unhappy marriage, and almost no tragedy so great as the degeneration of what God meant for love and fulfillment into a non-relationship of bitterness, discord, and despair. Although I believe that God's way in most cases is not divorce, I hope I shall write with sensitivity, for I know the pain which many suffer, and I have no wish to add to their distress. It is because I am convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, good for individuals, good for society, that I take my courage in both hands and write on. I feel similar to Mr. Stott. Divorce is an emotionally charged subject. I know it has personally affected many of you. Maybe your parents are divorced. Uh, Maybe you are. Maybe you're going through a divorce right now. However it's affected you, I know how painful divorce is, and if you had any way to avoid it, if you had known how to, I'm sure you would have. So divorce is emotionally charged, and it's also controversial and complex. As we'll see today, this is some rough sledding. And yet, like Mr. Stott, I stand here convinced that the teaching of Jesus on this and every subject is good, intrinsically good, 
and good for us. And so being convinced, I take my courage in both my hands and a good deal of compassion along with it, and I preach on. And may the Lord bless the preaching of his word today. Matthew 5, we're looking at verses 31 and 32, although we're going to jump around to a lot of passages today. But we begin here, Matthew 5, 31 through 32. This is the word of the Lord, Jesus speaking. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 31 here is a loose quotation of Deuteronomy 24.1, and the problem isn't with Moses and what he said in Deuteronomy, but with the popular interpretation application of it in Jesus' day. So turn with me, if you will, back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book of the Bible. We're going to look at a number of different passages. Deuteronomy 24 is one of the key ones in the Bible on divorce and in the Old Testament specifically. The Old Testament doesn't say a lot about divorce. This is one of the classic texts. Deuteronomy chapter 24, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 together. This is the background to Jesus' teaching. Moses writes, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, verse three, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. This is a, a good example of Old Testament case law. So it gives you the case to begin with. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes and marries another, but then she's widowed or she's divorced again by the second guy, the first man can't come along and remarry her. And the purpose of this law was to correct a practice that was obviously common in ancient times. And the effect of this was to ultimately disparage divorce and heighten the appreciation of marriage in Israel. Now you'll notice Deuteronomy doesn't say the man must get a divorce. It doesn't even elaborate on the grounds for a divorce, only that if a man finds or husband finds some indecency in his wife. Indecency is a good translation of the word here. The Hebrew word literally is the nakedness of a thing. If he discovers the nakedness of a thing, it's, it's an ambiguous phrase, just like the word indecency is, uh, but it suggests some kind of sexual sin or immorality, some kind of impropriety in that way. And yet this word indecency, this phrase, is what the rabbis in Jesus' days had argued over, had come to argue over. Uh, because of its in- ambiguity, two different rabbinical schools had emerged. 
On the one side was the more conservative uh, Shammai school, and on the other side was the more liberal Hillel. So here's how the two schools of thought are described in the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a Jewish document from around Jesus' time. It says, the school of Shammai says, a man must not divorce his wife unless he finds unchastity in her. For as it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. So the Shammai school says that indecency in Deuteronomy 24.1 means unchastity, some kind of sexual morality. Against this, the school of Hillel said indecency meant anything a husband didn't like about his wife. So the Mishnah reads, the school of Hillel says, even if she burns his food, for as it is written, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Now, of the two schools of interpretation, guess which one reigned in Jesus' day? The one where if she burnt his toast, he could divorce her, right? And this, well, no, that's not correct, but that is what reigned in Jesus' day. Good job paying attention. And this is exactly what Jesus was summarizing in Matthew 5, verse 31, back in our passage. He says, it was also said, so what's said popularly in your day is, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In other words, divorce should be easy. Just give her a, a certificate. It's casual. It can be for anything. If you fall out of love with her, divorce her. If you fall in love with someone else, divorce her. If you don't like her cooking, divorce her. And against this understanding, understanding of divorce, which we have to admit is very similar to what's popular in our day and even accepted in, in many churches today, against this, Jesus says, no, indecency refers to some kind of sexual immorality. Verse 32 of our passage, Matthew 5, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's the background and the teaching for Jesus here in Matthew 5, but Matthew 5 is not the only place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus teaches on divorce. So turn with me to the second place, Matthew chapter 19. Back in Matthew, flip over to chapter 19 now. Matthew 5 seems to be an abbreviated summary of Jesus' teaching, larger teaching on the topic in Matthew 19. And we want to spend some time studying this passage out. So, Matthew chapter 19, please follow along as I read verses 3 through 9. The Pharisees came up to him, being Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, 
and marries another, commits adultery. With the rest of the time we have today, I want to look at this passage and a few others in Scripture to cover a kind of comprehensive teaching on this topic. It won't be exhaustive, but I hope to cover all the main things. And I have four truths that I'd like to cover with you. Four truths on marriage and divorce taken from the Scripture. The first is God created marriage. God created marriage. This is where Jesus begins in Matthew 18 or 19. The Pharisees want to talk about divorce, but Jesus wants to talk about marriage. And he begins with the fact that God created marriage. Verse four, he says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? God made them male and female, and he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one. So God created marriage. He devised it. He designed it, and therefore he defines it. People are always trying to redefine things that only God has a right to define. So Jesus takes us back to Genesis, back to the beginning, to tell us how God defines marriage. It's one man. It's one woman coming together in one flesh so the two become one. This is something God has done. He joins people together in marriage. So it's a sacred union, sacred because God does it. It's a sacred union, and God's intention is for it to last a lifetime. It's till death do us part. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God makes a marriage, and only God can break a marriage. Biblical counselor Jay Adams has written, if marriage were of human origin, then human beings would have a right to set it aside. But since God instituted marriage, only he has the right to do so. Marriage as an institution, which includes individual marriages, of course, is subject to the rules and regulations set down by God. Individuals may marry, be divorced, and be remarried only if, when, and how he says that may, they may without sinning. The state has been given the task of keeping orderly records, etc., but it has no right or competence to determine the rules from marriage or for marriage and for divorce. The prerogative is God's. The state lacks the right and the competence to define marriage or redefine it, and so do we. Only God has that right and competence because he created it, and this is the starting place for talking about divorce. We have to begin by submitting our lives, our marriages, and our church to God's word and to God's will. Marriage is defined by God, but marriage is also designed by God. It's defined by God and it's designed by God. The Bible describes marriage as a covenant relationship. It's a covenant, an agreement between a man and a woman that is made before God. This is why on wedding days, the groom and bride exchange vows. They're covenant vows. They're making a covenant before God. And side note here for just a minute, let me just say, this is why I'm not enthusiastic about people writing their own vows. Because they tend to say things, they're trying to be endearing, they're trying to be nice, but then they say things like, I will be your sunshine on rainy days. 
and I will wash the dishes when you don't want to, and I will always be there to rub your feet, and like these things usually have some kind of meaning to like their relationship and to each other, and the other one's like crying about getting their foot massaged by the other person because it's meaningful, because this one time on this one park, on this one bench, they rubbed each other's feet because the ankle got sweat. You know, like it's got something, but, but these are covenant vows before God. And so they are made, they are designed, they should be best designed to describe just the essence of the vows we make before God. And by the way, back in Matthew 5, this is exactly why the very next antithesis Jesus covers is related to oaths. Because every divorce is due to at least one person not keeping their word, their vow, their oath. So back to where we were, God designed marriage to be a covenant, and we see this explicitly in Malachi 2.14, which I have overhead for you. There we read, the Lord was witness before you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So God designed marriage to be a covenant relationship made before him. And just to dive deeper into this for a minute, a lot of problems come about in marriage from thinking wrongly about the design of marriage. I mean, no one's thinking, they're not trying to say, let me redesign marriage, but it comes with some assumptions. So what happens is people begin to think of of marriage as like a consumer relationship. A consumer relationship is one where I figure out what I need and who best can meet that. And there's nothing wrong with a consumer relationship in and of itself. I have a consumer relationship with Amazon. I order from them what I want and they send it to my door. But if I find someone else who's cheaper or faster shipping, I go to them and that's how a consumer relationship works. It works fine in the marketplace, but I don't have that kind of relationship with my kid. Right, like I don't go to my son Joshua and say, hey buddy, you know, the time we've had together, it's been great, but here's the deal. Little Frankie down the street, he's come to me and he said he'll do twice the number of chores you do for half the allowance cost. (laughs) So, sorry buddy, I'm switching over to little Frankie. Like I don't have a consumer relationship with my son or my kids, that's not how our relationship works. It's based on commitment to my children and them to me. So that's how marriage is as well. It's a covenant commitment, but people try and make it consumer-based, and this leads to dysfunction and often divorce. Another mistake people make is they look at their marriage like it's contractual. Like we're both coming to the table to contribute something. So you do your part and I'll do mine. You do the dishes, I'll take out the trash. You make the home, I'll make the dough. It's all contractual, but again, we don't relate to our kids like that. And neither should we relate to our spouse like that. Marriage is not contractual, it's covenantal. It's not based on us fulfilling our parts, it's based on us staying committed even when we don't fulfill each other's parts. God designed marriage to be a covenant we make before him and there's a reason he did this. So we need to double click on God's meaning here about why did he make Marriage is a covenant. I mean, one reason is because they're healthier that way, but there's a deeper reason as well. So follow my thinking here. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God, right? 
So you look, at the, you look at the heavens and you just see, wow, the glory of God who made this. Or Romans 1 tells us God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, are clearly perceived in creation. So you look out and the sun's shining down on you and it's warm and it's glorious and it's powerful and you just think like, man, the God who made that is a powerful God and he's a good, gracious God. Right, the creation's, the deeper purpose of creation is to tell us things about God. And in a similar way, Paul teaches in Ephesians 5 that there is a deeper purpose to marriage. It was designed to show us Christ's love for the church. Marriage doesn't exist as an institution in itself. It was designed to teach us something more specific about God. Namely, the purpose of marriage is to picture Christ covenant love for his bride. Jesus doesn't love us because of, what we, because of what he gets out of the relationship. He doesn't love us because of what we bring to the table. He loves us because he has set his love upon us. He commits himself to us. And so think about this. If the deeper purpose of marriage is to display Jesus' love for us, then as long as Jesus is committed to his church, that's how long a husband should be committed to and cling to his wife. And as long as the church is to be faithful to Jesus, that's how long a wife should stay committed to her husband. Marriage is designed to showcase the love of Jesus to the world. And so we have to feel the weight of this. From the beginning, God created marriage. He defined it and he designed it for a purpose. A purpose deeper than marriage itself. He made it to picture forth the loving commitment of Jesus Christ to his church. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But this leads us to truth number two. Truth number two, God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Just a minute ago, we looked at at Malachi 2.14, where marriage is described as a covenant. A couple verses later in that same passage, in verse 16, the Lord says this on the overhead, you can read it. Malachi 2, 16. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You might have a footnote in your Bible that says this passage could also be translated, the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence. Uh, Whichever is the better translation, what's clear here is God condemns divorce. And this makes sense with what we've already seen. Divorce is fundamentally at odds with God's design for marriage. Now this leads us back to the question the Pharisees were asking Jesus in Matthew 19 though. So if you still got Matthew 19 open, Look at with me at verses seven and eight. They said, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So Jesus says it was because of your hardness of hearts, it's because of your sin that God permits divorce. Now this is an important lesson we learn about divorce. Is every divorce the product of sin? Yes. Does that mean every divorce is sinful? Most of the time, yes. 
but not always. And we'll get into the weeds of that in just a minute, but let's hover on that first here, part here for a minute. Divorce is always the result of sin. And that's why God hates it. It's always the product of sin. And yet, it's not always sinful. I don't know if you know this, but God is divorced. Jeremiah 3.18, or 3.8, God says, I gave faith, faithfulness, it should say faithless, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. The story of Israel is that God was committed to his people. God was faithful when she was faithless. But eventually, because of her hardness of heart, because she was unrepentant of her spiritual adultery, eventually even God presented his bride Israel with the certificate of divorce and sent her away. Now that's not where Israel's story ends. God goes on to pursue her and to woo her back. He ends up giving his life for her to demonstrate his undying love to her. And when she repents and returns, he welcomes her home and he, he remarries her and he adorns her. But the point not to be missed is if the Lord can divorce his adulterous spouse, then as much as he hates it, divorce can't always be wrong. God hates divorce and the sin that causes it. And most divorces are sinful. They dishonor and disobey God. Nevertheless, there are a couple of exceptions to the rule, which leads us to point number three, or truth number three this morning. God regulates divorce. God regulates divorce. This means that even though divorce was not a part of God's plan for a marriage, or for marriages, but because of sin, in accordance with passages like Deuteronomy 24, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 7, which we're going to look at here shortly, God does regulate and permit divorce in two situations, but just two. The first, we've already seen in Matthew 5 and then again in Matthew 19. The first grounds for a biblical divorce, biblical grounds for divorce, is sexual immorality. So if you still got Matthew 19 open, look with me at verse nine. Jesus says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So God permits divorce when there is sexual immorality. This is the first grounds for leg legitimate divorce. But notice again that Jesus does not say divorce is required. Divorce is permitted for sexual immorality, but it's not prescribed. This, and listen, this is where we have to keep God's word. It, God's word is so perfect in its, its word, but also in its structure and the way it's put together by God. And Matthew 19 follows right on the heels of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in Matthew 18. And this is so intentional. We should strive for forgiveness. The rabbis in Jesus' day taught that a repeated sin should be forgiven three times by a person. Peter in, in Matthew 18 thinks he can up it, he can be the better man, and he says, hey Jesus, what about seven times? <laughs> I'm pretty godly. And Jesus says, how about 77 times? In other words, you shouldn't even count him. You shouldn't even be able to count how many times you're willing to forgive someone. 
So God permits divorce because of sexual anatomy, but he doesn't prescribe it. Better to forgive a spouse if they're truly repentant. But let's say there is adultery, and let's say there is a divorce. What about remarriage? Let me give you two reasons why I think remarriage is permissible if the divorce is permissible. First, I think the exception clause here in Matthew 19 and also in Matthew 5, the exception clause except for sexual immorality, I think that modifies both whoever divorces and marries another. In other words, if sexual immorality is grounds for divorce, it's also grounds for being able to remarry someone. Modifies both. The second reason I believe this is that the historical cultural context, meaning divorce in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman world always included the right to remarry. And so Jew and Gentile, everybody included the right to remarry in their understanding of divorce. In fact, the standard wording on uh, rabbinic divorce certificates, remember you had to give your wife as a, it said this, you are allowed to marry any woman or any man you wish. So if Jesus intended to forbid remarriage in the case of adultery, then he would have had to explicitly teach that because everyone else assumed otherwise. Liberal, conservative, didn't matter. Everyone assumed you could remarry and Jesus did not teach us something different. So all that covers the first grounds for divorce. The first grounds is sexual immorality. The second we find in 1 Corinthians 7. So turn with me there. This is the last passage I'll have you turn to this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm just trying to stay really close to God's word with us on this today. 1 Corinthians chapter seven. Here the apostle Paul gives a second legitimate grounds for divorce, and that's abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. So 1 Corinthians chapter seven, let's look at verses 12 through 16. This is the apostle Paul writing. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, Meaning, this is not straight from Jesus' teachings, but I've received this from the Lord uh, by revelation. God's taught me this to teach you. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, that was a word back then that meant divorced, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband. How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is the second grounds for divorce in scripture, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Paul says we should try and live at peace with them. After all, God may use us as the unbelieving, or as the believing person to save our unbelieving spouse or to save our children. However, if the unbelieving spouse refuses to live with you, then Paul says, let them leave. You are not bound to a spouse that abandons you. Divorce is permitted in this situation. And in verse 15, where Paul says, 
in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. I take that to mean you're free to remarry. So God gives only two narrow grounds for divorce, sexual morality and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. In such cases, divorce is permitted but not prescribed. Now obviously, there's a lot not mentioned. For, you know, for only going down to two grounds, there's still a lot not mentioned here. And in every situation, uh, a person who's trying to weigh through these things needs to walk through them with the pastors and with their family and friends as we seek the wisdom of God in applying all this. But there are some obvious ones missing that you may be wondering about. What about physical abuse? What about a guy who won't work and gambles away his wife's earnings? What about verbal abuse? What about a confessing Christian, someone who confesses to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but who unapologetically looks at porn on a regular basis? There are all kinds of struggles in marriages that we can encounter like these. And I just want to say, God has not left you. If you are in that situation or ever get in that situation, God has not left you to fend for yourselves there. He has given you the church to help you. And church discipline is one way we can help. We go and confront a person on their sin. And if they refuse to repent, then we remove them from the church. In other words, we count them as an unbeliever. Now here, in my study this week, I came across this like, fantastic quote from a church discipline manual from the second century. Okay, so this is, like, this is gold pastoral ministry advice from the second century. Listen to this, it says, if there is a man who is abusing his wife in the church, the pastor should take two stout elders and visit that home. <laughs> I like that. You take a couple of stout elders with you. By the way, that's why they hired me way back when, because they needed some stout elders around here. They take a stout elder, and you go and you confront that guy. Church discipline is how we sort out, we're allowed to deputize deacons, by the way, in that instance, or really any stout guys in the church. <laughs> you could be called to serve in such instances because we will not allow those messes to continue without stepping in and providing assistance. And so if they refuse to repent, then we will put them outside the church, and in many cases, their treatment of their spouse Functionally, caught, or functionally can be counted as abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. They're refusing to live with them in a, in a believing, or in a, in a um, honorable marriage. And so we could count that as abandonment of, of a spouse and we might help them walk through a biblical divorce that way. If it, my point is, is that these things have to be walked through carefully and with the assistance of pastors and family and friends and that's what the church is here for. But may the Lord spare any of us from having to walk through that. All right, fourth number two, we have to, or fourth, truth number four, we have to walk through quickly. Um, I just, but I wanted to include this word, God redeems divorce. God redeems divorce. I just wanna remind you this. First, if you are divorced, remember, God knows what it's like. If I were to ask all the divorced people here to, to raise their hand, if God were with us, he'd raise his hand with you. Friends, he knows what you have been through. He knows 
because he's been cheated on, he's been betrayed, he's been lied to, he's been abandoned. So you can be honest with God about your feelings. You can be honest with God about your pain. You can tell him how it hurts. God knows and God cares. Not only that, but just like God's divorce of Israel wasn't the end of the story of Israel, your divorce is not the end of your story either. Maybe you've even committed terrible sins, but listen, that does not mean God is done with you. For one, just look at the story of David and Bathsheba for some encouragement. Their relationship started under the worst circumstances imaginable. David had an affair with her and murdered her husband. And yet when he confessed and repented, God cleansed and blessed their marriage, eventually bringing Solomon from them who had a son, 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 whose son is eventually named Jesus. So get this. God brought Jesus out of a line that began with an affair and a murder. Friends, this is amazing grace and it is all yours through Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what your sins are. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. Jesus has come and he is the groom of the church. He is our covenant spouse. When we are faithless, Jesus is faithful. When we've committed spiritual adultery, he never sends us away. Jesus has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He'll never cheat on us or abandon us. He is faithful to his end and the mercies of Jesus are new every morning. So you have grace in Jesus Christ. He redeems all our sin. So in conclusion, I just just want you to think about this as you leave today. The Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding. This tells us how significant marriage is to God. Revelation 19 tells us about the marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day, Christians will be ushered into the new heaven and the new earth and scripture says we will all be clothed with white linen robes. What's white on a wedding day symbolize? Purity. Are we pure? In Jesus Christ we are. Every one of us. In heaven, all our innocence is restored to us. If you have been sexually immoral, if you have been divorced 77 times, if you have just been a lousy spouse, hear this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Hallelujah, a fountain full of love for us poured out on us. Only our contrition must be real. Our 
our repentance earnest. A broken and a contrite heart, the Lord won't turn away. So take your sins and run to Jesus. Know his undying love for you, his covenant love. He will never leave or forsake you. You are his and he is yours. And blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Will you pray with me? God, not one of us here deserves an invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to the place where you honor your son and dress all those in attendance in festive white gowns. None of us deserve that, Jesus. We're all stained by our sin. And yet, your gospel call goes out for all of us. Come who will. We're so thankful for that call, Jesus Christ, and we respond to it either for the first time or for the 400th time today. In faith, Jesus, we want to be washed anew by your blood. Thank you for the blood that has washed away all our stains, and God, I pray for all those gathered here today. I pray for those who have been divorced. May there be no condemnation in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness for every sin. For all those who have suffered the pains of divorce, I pray that you would strengthen and heal and give them hope. For those of us married, I pray, Lord, you would protect our marriages and help us to hold fast to one another in covenant love. And for those not yet married, I pray this word today prepared them for marriage and impressed upon them the importance of sexual purity. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.